0: The National Archives podcast series. No intersex please, we're Olympians. Presented by Dr. Louise Chambers. Good afternoon everybody and uh, thank you for the opportunity to um, share some information with you about the history and the practice of testing gender at the Olympics. I think I've got three aims in doing this talk. One is to give you a history of gender testing which is actually quite short. it it really ran between 1966 and 1996, so it's quite a short history. So first point is to look at history. The second is to deal with some of the mythology and the obfuscation around gender and particularly intersex identity and deal with some of the issues and the myths around the idea of an intersex identity. And the third thing is really to ask questions about the way in which transsexuals and people who have been given an intersex identity tend to be confused and conflated, particularly in the way that the mass media and the tabloid press reports on these issues as they arise in the Olympics. Now I'm starting with a quote from a work by Plato called The Symposium. And this is from, uh, the the symposium is a series of speeches around the issue of sex, gender, and ultimately the idea of love. And Socrates and a number of other uh, philosophers are said to have gathered together and discussed this issue. Most of them had hangovers apparently because it it happened the day after they'd all had a big feast. So some of the talk I think is a bit uh, questionable. But anyway, I rather like this quote from the speech by Aristophanes. He says, In the first place, let me treat of the nature of man and what has happened to it. The original human nature was not like the present, but different. The sexes were not two as they are now, but originally three in number. There was man, woman, and the union of the two, with a bodily shape and a name of its own. Now only the word androgynous is preserved, and that as a term of reproach. So it was a term of abuse, um, Plato's saying, in um, the time that he was around. Now, anybody who's bred, for example, Freud, will know that when it comes to sex, gender, and sexuality, the Greeks, and particular mythology of the Greeks, quite a popular place to go for terminology. And I want to introduce another term that the Greeks spoke of to kind of give you some idea of the history behind intersex. And that's the idea of the hermaphrodite. Now, in mythology, in in the work of Ovid, in the Metamorphoses, um, the idea was that um, Hermes, the god and the goddess Aphrodite, formed a union. And out of that union came a child called hermaphroditus. And because they were beautiful and gods, hermaphroditus was very, very beautiful as as well and terribly narcissistic. And um, it, the story goes that when he was around 17 or 18 years old, he was walking by a river, and he decided it was a very hot day, and he decided to go for a swim. And while he was swimming, there were a number of nymphs in the water. One of them was called Salamachis, and she fell in love immediately with hermaphroditus, as you do. But he spurned her, and he ignored her, and he said he didn't want anything to do with her. So what she did, she wrapped her body around his body very tightly and prayed to the gods and asked that she and hermaphroditus should become one. And lo, it came to pass. And the idea of the hermaphrodite was formed. Now, in theory, an hermaphrodite is a human that has both male and female reproductive organs. Effectively, they have the ability to kind of um, create a baby without anybody else. They can fertilize their own ovaries because they have both testes and ovaries. Now, such people exist, but only about one in a million, one in two million babies are officially recorded as hermaphrodites. They're very rare, and they are always infertile. Now, the reason I tell you this story is because, as we will find out, intersex people who are very different, from hermaphrodites have been confused and conflated to the extent that through the whole of the 18th and 19th century, anybody who had what people call ambiguous genitalia or a body that didn't look either male or female when they were born or as they went through puberty were labeled as hermaphrodite, even though, strictly speaking, most of them weren't hermaphrodite. So I'd like you to keep that in mind. So I want to go through a, a number of things. One of the things I'm afraid I have to do is a bit of a biology lesson with you and just explain a little bit about chromosomes, karyotypes and phenotypes, just to, so we're all on the same page in terms of language. Explain a little bit more about what's meant by intersex and then take us to the Berlin Olympics in 1936 that's seen mythically, and we're still about mythology here, mythically seen as the starting point for gender testing at the Olympics. Then want to do a little bit around the development of gender testing, how it became a huge problem and eventually, for the most part, disappeared. And then, if I've got time, say a brief word about the relationship between transgender and transsexual people and sport. But I want to focus mostly on intersex people. Now, this is a a short piece from the Daily Mail, my favourite newspaper, from 19th August 2009, and the headline was She Wouldn't Wear Dresses and Sounds Like a Man on the Phone. And the article goes, On the first day of school, all the girls were proud of their new uniforms, but one girl did not share this liking for dresses, giggling, and gossip. Already tall and brawny at 11 years old, with a strangely gruff voice, this student did not stand out simply on account of her striking physique, no. What really set her apart from her fellow female pupils was the fact that she always preferred to dress as a boy. And that is not all, as though that's not enough, in quotes. This girl's student was also rough and preferred playing and fighting with boys. Indeed, even as a baby, she had kept clear of any girly games such as dolls or dressing up. Well, probably sums up about half the female population, I would think. But what they're talking about, some of you may have guessed, is a woman called Casta Semenya. So the article continues, The name of this unusual student, step forward, Casta Semenya. 18 years old, from an impoverished black township, who is at the centre of a row, raging across the world, following allegations that she's in fact a man. Now, nobody alleged that Casta was a man, actually. There were some questions about her physique, but nobody actually alleged that she was a man. The other thing that made me very cross when I read this article was that it was published on the morning that Castor was due to run the 800 meters. And the decision about testing her wasn't made until after she'd run that race and won, quite dramatically won by, she beat the world record by eight seconds. And then there was a question and an inquiry into her physique and her chromosomal makeup. But these newspapers, it wasn't only the Daily Mail, the Telegraph also published a similar article on the morning because somebody leaked information that the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, had made a tentative decision to look into Castor's genetic makeup and chromosomal makeup dependent on the outcome of a race that she hadn't even run So one of the problems I have around this issue is the way in which information, which is supposed to be personal and private, finds its way out in the public domain and people suddenly become the target of all of this hysteria and furore around their gender identity. So just to remind you, Casta Semenya is a South African athlete. She won gold in the 2009 World Championships, running the 800 metres and uh, she'd already run the 1500, and she beat the record, as I said, by eight seconds, and it was because of that margin, which was seen as quite a substantial margin based on usually the, the kind of millisecond, really, almost nanosecond differences, so eight seconds is quite a substantial difference, and the IAAF, the International Amateur Athletics Federation, said later on in the press that they felt obliged to investigate uh, Caster's genetic and chromosomal makeup because of the size of her victory. And as I said, the testing was then leaked before she ran the final on the 19th. Now, I need to give you a little bit of a biology lesson, and go to sleep if you know this stuff already. First, and, and I need to be able to explain what is meant by these terms chromosomes, karyotypes, and phenotypes. So, Basically, the theory, and it is a theory because it doesn't apply in practice, the theory is that the human body is made up of 23 pairs of chromosomes. And only one pair, only one pair, is linked to the development of our what they call the phenotype. Now, the phenotype is basically the physically observable characteristics that we have that enable us to distinguish whether a person is male or female. So it's your reproductive organs, your gonads, whether you've got testicles or ovaries, your genitalia, and then as you get older, whether you develop male pattern baldness, breasts, body hair in various different places, whether you start menstruating and so on. So the phenotype is about the physicality of your body in terms of its sex characteristics. The genotype... To use another expression, is the genetic information that supposedly tells the body whether or not to develop as male or female. That can't be seen. That's invisible. So the phenotype is the visible characteristics of sex. The genotype are the invisible characteristics. Does that make sense? Yes. Good. Some nodding. I'll get to karyotype and chromosomes in a sec. So there are only there is only one pair of chromosomes that relate to our sexual development. And some of you probably know, if you have an XX chromosomal type, then you are distinguished as female. If it's XY, you're distinguished as male. And my understanding, particularly from feminist biology, and I say this deliberately, is that the the Y chromosome is a mutation. All babies are originally XX. And then around the age, as I understand it, five or six weeks, there's a mutation, and the little bit of the X disappears and becomes a Y chromosome, and then the the male has the information that it needs to develop as a male baby. That's my understanding. So men are mutants, basically. Remember where you heard it first. (laughs) So as I said, normally 23 pairs of chromosomes in each cell, that's in every single cell of our bodies, and heaven knows how many cells there are, but every single cell contains these 23 pairs of chromosomes. So imagine how small they are—absolutely tiny—and the 23rd pair are distinguished as sex chromosomes. Now, the karyotype is a kind of mathematical, calculating way, or algebraic way, of showing um, what the type is. So what you get is or numbers of chromosomes and then whether this person is XX or XY so your karyotype is written on your medical documents as a number number of chromosomes followed by whether you're XX or XY and as I said the the example I've got here 46 comma XX you're phenotypically female so you would expect to look feminine develop breasts play with dolls as the male tells us and Not fight and and like boys and like dresses and all the rest, and giggle. Giggling's important. Um, And and if if you develop as as the the average male looking man develops, then you've got an X and a Y chromosome, and that would be developing as a a person who's phenotypically male, likes fighting, doesn't giggle, doesn't play with dolls, looks brawny, is very tall, etc., etc. Okay, and I say this. Slightly tongue-in-cheek, but bear in mind when you're when you're dealing with athletes, it seems to me the more that a female body becomes muscular, becomes strong, becomes very physical, the more masculine socially they're becoming. Does that make sense? Because women are supposed to be stick sex with skinny bodies, so they they look good in fancy clothing, you know, high heels, and pencil skirts. If you develop a body that is strong and tough and very, very athletic, it becomes harder and harder to put that woman into that feminine category. And that's one of the arguments about athletics, is a woman has to be strong and athletic, but that's what men are. So she's actually becoming like a man. And some people argue that a problem that people like Daily Mail have with that is that women aren't supposed to become like men. They're supposed to be nice and girly and giggly and play with dolls. Okay. Now, I need to say something as well about intersex issues. This definition comes from the UK the website, the UK Intersex Association. So I've tried to use the definitions that come from intersex people themselves rather than from the medical community. And they say, intersex people are individuals whose anatomy or physiology differ from contemporary cultural stereotypes of what constitutes typical male and female. And we have to be very careful with language, because, for example, a medical person will say their genitalia are, quote, ambiguous, unquote. And the point is, for the individual themselves, there's nothing ambiguous about the genitalia. They're their genitalia. They're individual to them. They're not ambiguous. But when you put those genitalia into a male-female framework, they are then seen as ambiguous. So it may be your genitals, when you're born, appear to be, To use that term, ambiguous, because they don't look properly male or properly female. They look like something else. You might have a a long clitoris, a tiny penis. You might have both um, testes and a vagina at the same time. Loads and loads of different kinds of variations. So some intersex conditions are apparent when the child is born. And something like one in a thousand children are born with... These indeterminate, if you like, genitalia. So that's about 60,000 in this country alone with these supposedly indeterminate genitalia. But it's not just that easy because, on top of that, other conditions develop as the child goes through puberty. And these are some of the more common conditions. There are literally hundreds of different intersex conditions. Magnus Hirschfeld, I think he was exaggerating a little bit, but he said he'd estimated, just based on things like chromosomal differences and genital differences, there are something like 47,000 ways of being gendered, 47,000 different kinds of possibilities. Get your heads around that. So I'm, I'm dealing with the more common kind of intersex sex conditions so these are the kinds of conditions that tend to appear as a person is growing up and particularly going through puberty so turner syndrome which appears to affect one in two thousand females that where the person just has one X chromosome no there's there's just the one X there's no second X and no Y just a single X and women with this condition are likely to be for example a lot shorter than uh, than the average woman and will almost always be infertile. And is unlikely to menstruate. So it may only appear to her and eventually become diagnosed when she goes to the doctor and says, I'm not menstruating, what's wrong with me? XYY. Now, there was, I don't know if any of you are as old as I am, but back in the mid-70s, there was a show called The XYY Man. Anyone? Now, there was a myth around XYY that it makes you a criminal. And in fact, in the course of this programme, this, this guy who has this syndrome explains that the reason he's a criminal is because he's got this extra Y gene. Now apparently one in every thousand males is born with this, an extra Y chromosome. So instead of having 46, he's got 47 chromosomes and three of those chromosomes are seen as sex chromosomes. There's another syndrome called Klinefelter's syndrome, and there's a brilliant film I would really urge you to, to, to get hold of it. A film called XXY is an Argentinian film, and it really explains what it's like to live with a particular kind of intersex condition. It affects one in a thousand males. It's often referred to as Klinefelter's syndrome. And it basically means, again, like the XYY, that you've got an extra chromosome. Only this time, instead of an extra Y chromosome, you've got an extra X chromosome. Now, I'm I'm explaining all these things because when we get down to the testing, you need to try and remember these. So I will be testing you later. Another very common condition, and this comes up time and time again in athletics, is a condition known as mosaicism. And basically, instead of having regular cells, I said earlier, all your cells are all the same, There are some people, and it looks like it could be as many as 1 in 500 people who have irregular cells. Some cells are XX, some cells are XY, some are XXY, some are XXX and so on. So the cellular makeup of the body is like a mosaic, hence mosaicism. And all of these issues and complications don't usually appear until puberty. So, you've got these boys and girls growing up thinking they are, and I'll put it in quotes again, normal, and they're having a normal, uh, they're expecting to go through puberty as normal individuals, and there then becomes a problem. They might not develop breasts, they might not start menstruating, their testicles may not drop when they expect them to, they may not be able to get erections. They go to their doctor, and the doctor eventually does a series of chromosomal tests and tells them that they've been diagnosed with an intersex condition. And again, I want you to bear in mind, these children have been living as boys and girls and completely unaware of the fact that their bodies don't appear to conform to what's considered the norm. Finally, a couple of things before we look at the Olympics. Women did not start performing in the Olympic Games until 1900. I was gobsmacked to find that out. I couldn't believe it, but that's the way it is. There were 22 competitors who... um, took part in the Paris Olympics in 1900. And then I was looking at the reports and it was saying the first substantial programme was at the Paris again at Paris in 1924. 135 women and 2,954 men. And that's considered to be substantial um, in terms of the representation of women. So I thought it's a very new way of defining substantial. So it wasn't considered feminine, you weren't supposed to have an athletic body, You're basically your body's there to make babies, so it's about being big and, and strong, but not athletic. This idea was very, very firmly set in concrete almost, and it was only at the turn of the century and the emergence of what they called the new woman, which is a whole other set of lectures, where women began to basically say, why can't we take part Why can't we work? Why can't we do things that the boys do? So women were finally allowed in um, to this men-only thing in 1900. I now want to take you to 1936, and this is really where the mythology began to kick in. Berlin, 1936, Hitler came to power in 1933 landslide victory in the election and sees the Olympic Games as a huge propaganda exercise. And again, if you know anything about history, you'll probably know a little bit about how the 36 Olympics were seen as a place to show how the Aryan race could could predominate and could be seen to be the best of the best. And any German Jewish athletes were kicked out and replaced by Aryan good, white, flaxen-haired, blue-eyed, Blonde haired Aryan people who would demonstrate the quality of the Aryan race. And the aim, Hitler's aim during these Olympics, apart from all this militaristic stuff, was to win more gold medals than anybody else to prove the supremacy of the Übermensch. And two stories circulate now, I emphasize now, These stories were not circulating in 1936, despite what people say, and I want to take you briefly through them. The first one I've called Dora's Story. Now, if you look at a book by Christopher Hilton, which was written in 2006, the book's called Hitler's Olympics. Hilton says there was a a person called Hermann Ratchian, who was a member of the Hitler Youth, masquerades as a woman for the glory of the Reich, and replaced a woman called Gretel Bergmann, who was a Jew, in the high jump. And Hilton goes on to argue this was part of a Nazi conspiracy to um, get the, the best possible results from these athletic competitions, and that Hermann was a man who dressed as a woman and masqueraded as a woman called Dora in order to win the high jump. In the Daily Mail on the 24th of August, only five days, remember, after the, the earlier article I showed you about Casta Semenya, they published this piece, again about the Berlin Games, in a, a, an article called The Berlin Games, How Hitler Stole the Olympic Dream. Dora Ratnian, whose real name was Hermann, was deliberately entered into the female event by the Nazis to ensure an unfair advantage. And it goes on to talk about pretty much the same thing that Christopher Hilton talked about. Now the interesting thing is that when you do a bit of digging around you discover this person wasn't called Hermann at all, their name was Heinrich. So not only have these two writers um, got some of their information wrong, they can't even get the right name for this individual. So I had a look at another article which was produced about a month later um, by Der Spiegel which is a German magazine and they tell this whole story very differently. They say that on the 21st of September 1938, now that's two years after the Berlin Olympics, a person called Dora Ratnian was en route home after she she lived in Köln, and she was going home and she handed her ticket over while she was sitting on the train to a ticket inspector. And he had, quote, suspicions about her correct gender, and he wondered why a man was sitting in the carriage in a dress. And so he reported her to the police... And she was arrested and accused of fraud, and eventually it transpired that she had her let 's just say for the moment that her gender identity was was put into question. She was examined by a, a German medical doctor who declared that she was a man and she Her gold medal was taken away from her. She just won gold at the, not at the Olympics, but at um, the athletics championships. That gold medal was taken away from her and she was no longer allowed to compete as a woman. So Der Spiegel did a bit of digging around and spoke to her father, who was also called Heinrich. And this is what he said in 1938 When the child was born, the midwife called over to me. She said, Heini, it's a boy. But five minutes later to me, she said to me, it's a girl after all. And Dora was raised as a girl. In 1938, she said, my parents brought me up as a girl. I wore girls' clothes through all my childhood. From the age of 10 or 11, I started to realise I wasn't female, again going through puberty. However, I never asked my parents why I had to wear women's clothes, even though I was male. Now, what you need to know about intersex conditions is that they are a very well-kept secret. There are many, many families that don't even talk about sex, never mind gender difference. And particularly if you're going back to the 1930s and, and back before the 1930s, sex is something that is not being spoken about. So if you've got a child with a particular kind of condition and appears to be of an indeterminate sex, you just don't say anything about it and you hope nobody notices and you also hope she doesn't notice. So Der Spiegel is arguing that part of the case around this issue of of Dora's identity is that when she entered the Olympics, it wasn't a conspiracy. She entered the Olympics thinking she was an ordinary girl who's uh, running for her country. So as she grew up, she developed an interest in athletics. She joined Comet Bremen Athletics Club in 1934, age 15, competing as a woman. She was regional champion of Lower Saxony and a contender for the German Olympic team. However, when she was examined by a police physician on 22nd of September 1938, this is what the physician reported. He said, I found a thick band of scar tissue running backwards from the underside of the penis in a relatively broad line. It is therefore questionable whether this band of scar tissue would allow him to engage in sexual intercourse in a normal matter. Now, this is really crucial. And there is, again, if you want to do a bit of follow-up reading, there is a superb book by Anne Fausto-Sterling, who um, is a biologist, particularly interested in in gender and gender difference. And she has found quite a few examples of children around this period who have apparently indeterminate genitalia. And she's quite interested in why these children are being brought up as girls and not as boys if they appear to have a penis. So she asked this question, why raise Dora as a girl? Dora's father said she shouldn't have to wear women's clothing under any circumstances because she couldn't urinate when standing and she can never have sex as a man. Now, Anne Foster-Sterling is arguing this is absolutely crucial in making decisions about whether or not to bring a child up who has an intersex condition as a girl or a boy. And basically what it boils down to... And some of the women here may not be surprised to hear this. If the penis is fully functional, i.e. you can get an erection, you can ejaculate, and you can stand up whilst urinating, then the child will be brought up as a boy. In any other circumstance, the child will be brought up as a girl. And the penis will either be excised or it will be turned into, a, and I put this again in quotes, into a vagina. It will be kind of inverted. And then the child will be treated as a girl. So it's, Sterling is arguing that in a patriarchal society, you have to have a fully functioning penis. And if you don't, you might as well be a girl, because that's all girls are, humans without a fully functioning penis. So it was, what, what Felster Sterling is arguing is it would have been perfectly logical to bring Dora up as a girl because of this congenital abnormality that she has in her genitalia. However, German authorities decided she looked too masculine. She was eventually given official papers that declared that she was a man. She changed her name to Heinrich, which was her father's name, and eventually took over the family pub and spent the rest of her life running this bar. And she never, ever submitted herself to any more medical examination. So we don't know what her, if you like, her prognosis was, because she decided she wanted the private to be private, as it were. There's a lovely punchline to this, by the way. Germany did win more medals than anyone else, but um, Dora came fourth in the high jump. And a Jew from Hungary actually got the gold medal, so sometimes history has a nice way, or fate has a nice way of working things out. Another story from 1936 is a story of two athletes, whom I'll call Stella and Helen. Now, Stella was originally called Stanislava Walisewicz, and she was a Polish athlete who lived in the United States in the early part of her life. But when she became an athlete, she was given the option of either running for Poland or running for the United States. She opted for Poland. And so when she competed in the 1936 Olympics in the 100-metre sprint, she competed as a Polish athlete. And her biggest rival was a woman called Helen Stevens. Now, a couple of years earlier, Stanislava had beaten Helen Stevens in the same 100-meter race, but in, in obviously in a different competition. But this time, Stevens beat her um, in a record time of 11.5 seconds. So guess what Stanislava did? She complained that Helen was actually a bloke and said that she needs to be subject to an examination. Now, Stella Walsh, And again, there's a mythology around this, which I'll try and sort out later. But Stella apparently was referred to as Stella the Fella, because she also had quite a masculine phenotype. But we'll talk about that later. So anyway, Helen Stevens is subject to um, an examination just of of her external genitalia. She's confirmed as a woman, and that's pretty much the end of that. Until 1981... 1981, in the meantime, Stella has had enough of Poland. She's emigrated to the United States. She now has American citizenship. She changes her name, anglicizes it, to Stella Walsh. And she goes to the supermarket one morning, having done her shopping. She's putting her shopping in her car. And suddenly, a gunfight starts up. There's a bank nearby and the, somebody's tried to rob the bank. They made a hash of it. The cops have turned up and there's the gunfight going on and Stella's caught in the middle and she's shot dead by a stray bullet. So she's shot and killed and because it was a violent death, there's an autopsy. And according to the New York Times reporting on 23rd of January 1981, Stella has male sex organs. And this is according to the autopsy. And the report also said that Miss Walsh had no female sex organs. It's later found that she had both xx and xy pairs of chromosomes so she had or had mosaicism. and they tried to take away her medals but what her family argued that when she competed she competed as a girl as a woman she had no idea that she had this chromosomal makeup so as far as she was concerned she was female maybe an intersex woman but nonetheless female so they allowed her to keep her medals now this this then interestingly enough this case gets reported nearly 30 years later by daily mail now this is a few days after the um the castor piece same author we've been here before with stella the high speed fella says guy walters the silver medal was won by stella walsh a polish sprinter whose true gender was only discovered When he stroked, she was gunned down in the crossfire of a bank robbery in 1980. The autopsy revealed that her nickname of Stella the Fellow was well-deserved. She was found to have male genitalia. Now, here's the thing. I cannot find, and nor can any other researcher, any reference to Stella Walsh being called Stella the Fellow before 1981. There is no evidence that she was called that in the 1930s, 40s, 50s or 60s because they only found out about her intersex condition in 1981. Does that make sense? So you've got this reading back through history which is just utterly nonsensical and quite annoying because the real issue wasn't either Dora or Stella but the issue was around two other people. Now on the 10th of August 1936, so this is during the Olympics, a chap called Avery Brundage, who was the American US Olympic president, said that he thought that all women athletes entered the Olympics should be subjected to a thorough physical examination. This isn't because of Dora and Stella, because these issues didn't come up until much later. But this is about two other athletes Zdenka Kubkova who ran, again, in the 800 metres, and a woman, an English woman, called Mary Edith Weston. Now, the newspapers claim that these women were transsexuals, but they weren't, in actual fact. Because when you, again, when you do a little bit of research and you look at the lives of these individuals, both Zdenka and Mary Edith Weston had intersex conditions. Now, despite all of this information, telling these people that these women in good faith performed and ran as women and not as men pretending to be women. Nonetheless, the International Amateur Athletics Federation decided after the war to introduce a rule where it required every single female athlete to produce a medical certificate to prove they were women. This wasn't required of the men, it was just required of the women. And if they couldn't produce a certificate, then they weren't allowed to compete. And the IOC introduced this in 1948. Now, they didn't tell the countries how they made that decision about whether the person was male or female or what kind of test they had to do. So you can imagine every single country was doing a different thing. There was no standardisation whatsoever. And this has led to a whole load of problems. So for example in 1949 a Dutch athlete so I've got to be very careful how I say this name it's Fukia Dilemma came to Providence to, sorry to prominence and she was a rival to a very famous Dutch athlete Fanny Blenkas Kern who'd won loads and loads of gold medals at the 48 Summer Olympics now unfortunately for Fukia she was tested by the Dutch Athletics Federation and she failed the sex test and she was banned both expelled from, the, from games and banned for life. And it is a bit late to do this, but 57 years later, and, I, and it's still not clear how this happened, but after she died, they found some DNA cells in her clothing, and it turned out she had somatic mosaicism. In 1950s, the Russians joined, and I don't remember the 50s, but I do remember the 60s. And again, if there's any anybody else here who remembers the 60s and 70s, there were always big jokes about East German and Russian athletes, particularly people doing discus, javelin, shot put, that they were basically men on um, yeah men or women on heavy steroids. So in 1952, the Soviet Union joined the Olympics. And there's a great deal of conjecture in the West about different Soviet athletes, but particularly two sisters from the Ukraine, Irena and Tamara Press. And they won five gold medals between them um, in Rome and in Tokyo. Now there was, and and again you kind of had to be there, there was a great deal of conjecture in the press about Eastern European athletes and, and people running for the Soviet Union because they all appeared to be kind of pumped up with steroids so in 1966 finally there was a formal verification test which was a visual thing basically women and again it's only women had to take their clothes off and parade naked in front of three medical people who would decide whether or not their genitalia and their breasts were sufficiently female and some people think the reason all this happened was to do with the cold war And in fact, countries from the Soviet Union were winning all these medals and the West were getting a bit cheesed off. Although I should say, to be fair, that Irina and Tamara never ran again after 1966. Once these tests were introduced, they stopped running. Coincidence? And unfortunately, one of the things that occurred is this kind of a story. This is Maren Seidler, who's an American shot putter. She said, they lined us up outside a room. You had to go in and pull up your shirt and pull down your pants. Then they just looked while you waited for them to confer and decide if you were okay. I remember one of the sprinters, a tiny skinny girl, came out shaking her head back and forth and saying, well, I failed. I didn't have enough on top. They say I can't run and I have to go home because I'm not big enough. And you kind of wonder how many women would fail this test who think of themselves as normal, ordinary, everyday women. So even a visual test isn't necessarily going to be able to separate the women from the men. However, and again I'm using this word sophisticated in quotes, testing began to shift from a visual look at the outside of the physical body to the person's chromosomal makeup. So in 1967, the International Olymp- Olympic Committee adopted something called the Bar Body Test. And this is a test for X chromosomes. It doesn't test for Y. If you have an X Just one X chromosome, you only need one, and it's put under a microscope. Some of the cells with the X chromosome come up as dark on the microscope. If you only have Y chromosomes in your body, then then this extra chromosome doesn't appear at all. You just have a whole load of light cells underneath underneath the microscope. So they're looking for these dark X cells. Unfortunately, if you have a Y, just one Y chromosome, you can fail this test. So a woman called Eva Klobukowska failed, and so did an Austrian skier called Erika Scheiniger. Now, there's a couple of interesting stories around this. Um, Erika eventually decided to change her sex and become Eric. And I think it was in 1977, she hosted a TV show, or I should say he hosted a TV show. He invited the silver medalist, the person who won the silver medal that year, onto the show and gave her his gold medal. Isn't that sweet? Mm -hmm. But my favourite story is Eva. Because Eva, two years after failing this test, guess what happened? She gave birth to a beautiful baby boy. Now the reason for this is because this test cannot handle the different intersex conditions that I outlined earlier on in the talk, it can't deal with Turnus syndrome. It can't deal with androgen insensitivity syndrome because they're of the Y, uh, presence of the Y chromosome. So although the phenotype, the observable characteristics of these uh, individuals is women, women might still fail the test if they have an XXY or an XYY chromosome. And men with Klinefelter syndrome will pass the test, even though they look really masculine. So the test is just, it's pointless, really, because it's not testing what it's supposed to be testing. And as I said, Eva, two years later, gave birth to a healthy baby boy, even though she was officially male. Um, 1985, a Spanish hurdler called Maria Martinez Bertino, who again had androgyne insensitivity syndrome. She was originally told she wasn't allowed to compete. She overturned this decision. And again, the decision was made because she failed this test. Well, she appealed against it and she overturned the decision. And eventually, IAAF went back to visual testing because chromosomal testing was just not working. The Olympic Committee hung on for a little bit longer. Eight athletes failed during the 1996 Atlanta Olympics and all of them appealed and all of them were eventually allowed to pass the test. And eventually, in 1999, the IOC gave up this testing. But, and this is where Semenya comes back in, if somebody raises an issue about the gender or the sex of an athlete, then what the IOC will then do is submit that individual to a whole battery of different kinds of tests. Now, the issue around trans athletes since 2004, certainly in this country, is much, much simpler. First of all, in 1990, the IAAF became the first international body that allowed trans people to to compete. Before then, transsexuals weren't allowed to compete at all, end of story. But... By 1990, you were allowed to compete under certain conditions. And I'll talk about those in a minute. And the IOC took another 14 years, and I think this coincides with, certainly in this country, with the Gender Recognition Act in 2004. And these are the restrictions. If you have gender reassignment surgery before puberty, then you're automatically accepted, allowed to compete in the gender that you've transitioned into. If you have gender reassignment surgery after puberty, then you must have had all of your surgical changes complete, and that means genital surgery. So, if you want to be, if if you're living as a man and you want to compete as a female athlete, you have to have genital surgery and hormone treatment in order to enable you to compete as a woman. Um, An orchidectomy is removal of the testes, just in case you're wondering. And I just put this question at the bottom, what about the gay games? Because the gay, the gay games and the gay Olympics, you're not allowed to call it the gay Olympics, but hey. People who compete in the gay games, provided you are competing in the gender in which you live your life, you don't have to fulfil any of these criteria. So I live as a woman, I can compete as a woman regardless of hormone surgery or, or anything else, which strikes me as a lot fairer. Now, going back to castosomenia. So on the 6th of July, so bear in mind, she's put up with this furore, this hysteria for nearly a year. On the 6th of July she was cleared and she was allowed to return to international competitions again. I, I remember she competed in the Olympics last year. And nobody knows what the results of the tests were. And I want to end with a couple of quotes. The first is by Alice Drager. Now again if you're interested in this whole area around hermaphroditism. This is a brilliant book. It's kind of a history of hermaphrodites and intersex people. And it's called Hermaphrodites and the Medical Invention of Sex. And this is what Alice Drager says, on just commenting on the case of Caster She says, where do we draw the line between men and women in athletics? I don't know. The fact is, sex is messy. This is demonstrated in the IAAF's process for determining whether Semenya is in fact a woman. The organisation has called upon a geneticist, an endocrinologist, a gynaecologist, a psychologist and probably a few other ists as well. Sex is so messy that in the end these doctors are not going to be able to run a test that will answer the question. Science can and will inform their decision But they're going to have to decide which of the dozens of characteristics of sex matter to them. Is it your genotype? Is it your chromosomes? Is it your hormones? Is it the way that you look? Is it the way you look before puberty or after puberty? And so on. She says these officials should come up with a clear set of rules for sex typing one open to scientific review, one that will allow athletes like Semenya in the privacy of their doctor's offices to find out before publicly competing whether they will be allowed to win in the crazy sport of sex. I bet that's a sport no one ever told Semenya she would have to play. Now I want to go further than that and argue about the impossibility of deciding about what constitutes a proper woman. And this is about femininity, not about masculinity. But it is about masculinity, because it's about how feminine is a woman allowed to be before she's considered to be male. So going back to what I was saying earlier, if you want to compete as an athlete, you have to have stamina, strength, quite a lot of muscle tone, and a body that appears to be more masculine than feminine, because we equate Muscle tone and stamina and strength with masculinity. Does that make sense? So the better an athlete you become, the more masculine, and I put that word in quotes, you have to be in terms of the way that you use your body. And again, there's a very, very interesting book by a um, a feminist philosopher called Iris Marion Young, and it's called Throwing Like a Girl. And she basically argues that when girls grow up, and I understand this is changing, but it certainly was the case when I was at school, when girls grow up, they are not taught to throw and to use their bodies in the same way as boys. And if you ever watched a girl playing football in the 60s and compare it to the way professional women play soccer now, you'd know exactly what she means. And maybe that's how you were brought up to use your bodies. But the argument is if women develop their bodies and use their bodies athletically in terms of throwing, running, jumping and so on, the way men are taught, then women will develop what appear to be masculinized bodies because that's what men are supposed to look like. And what a lot of these writers are saying is that if you want successful athletes in your country who are women, they're going to have what appear to be very masculinized bodies. Does that make sense? That's the first thing. But the second thing is around this issue of intersex bodies. Because every single one of these women that I've spoken about, without exception, believed that they were women when they were competing. And that includes Dora all of these women believed that they were ordinary women and a lot of that belief was because of the secrecy and the ignorance surrounding intersex conditions and i believe a lot of the issues around what casta semenya had to face was equally due to the secrecy and the ignorance around intersex conditions so what needs to happen is i think is a, a raising of the public's understanding of intersex conditions and some way of being able to censure the press to stop them engaging in this myth-making and repeating mythology, which is clearly myth, and yet continues to be repeated in the press on a daily basis. Thank you for listening. This talk was recorded on the 20th of June, 2013 at the National Archives, Q. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.